Welcome to Bite My Tongue, the podcast where we invite our fave people from the creative industries to tell all on the topics we're so used to biting our tongue on. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Olivia Spring, who is the founder and editor of Sick Magazine, but you're going to find out a bit more about her in a bit. And yeah, we were talking about disability culture um, and, you know, the world of publications and publishing for chronically ill and disabled people and this was one of our deeper chats um Mm. a bit more serious but still incredibly enjoyable and I really appreciated Olivia's patience with us throughout and just yeah her eloquence and Mm. articulation with everything yeah definitely um yeah it was it was such a great insight for sure um and yeah like whilst it was like a deeper chat I still felt like this lightness about her which was like really great um but she was so nice do you know what I mean like yeah um, like it was just it was great um yeah I like what we mean by that is like we talk a lot about how like angry and pissed off we get yeah but I didn't feel weighed down by that sort of thing it was like yeah fucking angry fucking pissed off but we move we we move sort of thing yeah because this is something that me and you aren't as clued up on like some of the other topics that we've covered in the podcast we have very much an intimate relationship with Mm. but this was something that you know a a learning situation yeah and you know it was something that I learned a lot through Olivia's magazine through SIG um and yeah so it was a sort of no-brainer when it was like who do we want on the podcast it was like really want to chat to Olivia um who has started this incredible thing Mm. yeah and just like as an editor in general just really amazing yeah like the fact yeah in this episode to do your own like publication is just crazy yeah like in the episode we talk about that sort of setup um how those things came about Mm. how she approaches things um and I think again like it, it was just very admirable um how she does these things and yeah just also a very sweet funny funny person right exactly yeah with a cute dog which doesn't appear in the podcast but that's how I was backstage yeah I'm gonna say (laughs) I'm gonna say this um I'm actually deeply disappointed with this episode (laughs) because at no point did I actually see the dog the dog was referenced I knew it was in the room but I didn't actually see the dog so yeah you know what everyone just turn off the episode right now because <laughs> you you all now know that there was no dog in the presence of Foz so what is the point what is the point no um but yeah we hope that everyone enjoys this episode and please do check out sick magazine hi everyone welcome back to another episode of bite my tongue this is izzy and Foz, do you want to say hello to the peeps Hello to the peeps. This is Foz talking. <laughs> wow, that was a new intro for us. All right. Yeah, you know, mix it up, mix it up. And um, we have a, a lovely guest today, as always. Um, Olivia, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Olivia. Uh, I'm the editor of Sick Magazine, which is a magazine by chronically ill and disabled people. And I'm a writer uh, working on my first book currently. That's exciting. Are we allowed to hear anything about the book or shall I keep my trap shut? I can, yeah. I mean, it's just, I'm just writing it. There's nothing too exciting about it, but I'm happy to talk like about, about it. Of course. Yeah, so my book is a memoir that I'm currently working on, which starts when I get sick when I'm 11 years old. So it kind of focuses on like growing up in New York City and like the trauma that I went through there, all the medical trauma, and then just like go having to go to school through it all. Um, it talks a lot about fatigue, specifically illness like chronic Lyme disease and chronic fatigue, and a lot about like guilt and the emotional kind of journey 
as annoying as that word is, um, <laughs> that I go through kind of, and then moving to England. So it spans like, I guess, like 12 years um, of my life, like from 11 years old to kind of present. Um, and I've been working on it for, I guess, over a year now. Um, I did finish a first draft, which was exciting. <gasps> Um, that's a big congrats. step yeah but I have I'm trying to like it's going to be side by side with all my medical notes um so I have like this huge medical history like 200 pages of notes from doctors that I have to like sift through and then like choose stuff that I want to highlight in it so that's like way harder than actually writing so I've like written my stuff and now I'm trying to do that and I just keep not doing it because it's quite a lot to go through and it makes me mm. very angry <laughs> So. I'm sure yeah that sounds fascinating though yeah I'm excited when, about it when can we um expect to read it I have no idea I mean hopefully someone <laughs> will want to publish it <laughs> it I'm sounds sure. amazing I'm sure that someone would I'm yeah. yeah and you said that you moved to England but you're not in England at the moment so well when did you move to England and when did you move away from England so I moved to England to go to university. So I went to Goldsmiths. Um, so I moved right after high school and studied for three years. And then I moved to Norwich and I lived there for two years with my ex-partner. Um, and then during the pandemic, I kind of found myself back here closer to family. And it's kind of a weird weird return I very much thought I would live in England forever and that was my goal I like really did not want to be in the states but life you know some things comes at you fast and and all of a sudden I'm living in Maine I live very rurally for the first time in my life which is very strange but I love it Would you hope and to I move back dog. to England? And you have a dog. We, we've yeah. already got very excited about the dog. <laughs> Pre, um, pre-recording. I, I, would, I don't know. I can't even think about my future anymore because I feel like I used to think I was going to live in England forever. And now that I'm back here, I like can't even fathom living anywhere other than here. Like I'm just so here right now. Hmm. Um, I definitely like feel like my like writing and kind of like career is like British like um like I feel like if I if my book is published I would like to like launch it over there you know because it feels like very I don't know I guess I I felt more at home when I lived in England for sure um so yeah it's definitely feels very weird but also with visas and immigration and that whole stuff is like another reason that I'm back here um and it's such a nightmare it's ridiculous to navigate and it's very like dehumanizing and just exhausting and you just feel like your worth is just like tied to work basically or I just don't want to have to deal with that anymore really and it's nice to just be like I'm a citizen of America I can just live here without having to like get approval so that's a big reason I feel like for my mental health it's nice to be somewhere I don't have to think about like deserving to be there and yeah if you're enjoying your little rural situation why not lap it up I think yeah exactly we we love a nature situation yep that's what I'm trying (laughs) to do (laughs) and um earlier you mentioned um sick magazine could you tell us a bit more about that and how it came about yeah so sick is a magazine by chronically ill and disabled people Um, I started it in 2019. Um, I I guess I first had the idea two years earlier when I was at Goldsmiths. I was living in Peckham. I was waitressing at like a little pizza place. It was a very specific moment where I thought of sick. Like I feel like I always tell this exact story of like being fired from my job and having like a total meltdown of like, how am I ever going to have work? How am I ever going to work? How am I ever going to live right so when I moved to England I was very much like I knew that I would have to get a job that would sponsor me on a visa to stay in England after university and you know I was already sick I knew I was sick I could hardly go to school but for some reason I thought like oh that'll be no problem I'll just get like a job at Vogue or something (laughs) and they'll sponsor me and then I'm at uni and 
I mean, I did, my health was pretty good at uni. Like I did have some ups and downs, but I was like, for the most part, able to like go to uni. Um, so then when I had this part-time job where I was only working one to two shifts a week and I couldn't do that and I got fired, I was just like, well, what the hell am I even doing? Like, what am I trying to do here in England? Like I'm coming here for three years. I'm not going to be able to stay. I want so desperately to stay. So I'm just like setting myself up for heartbreak. I'm going to have to move back to America. So I was just in a really, really depressed place. And I was in my room just like literally pacing, crying, having a very elaborate meltdown with my boyfriend. And I was just like, I have to do something. I have to do something that focuses on this experience because like, there's just no way I'm the only one experiencing this. Like we can't just have all these people who go through this and then just be like, okay, well, I can't fit into society or I can't fit into work and like, that's that. And I'm gonna just keep trying anyway and suffering through it and just feeling horrible and worthless. So originally I thought like, I need to have like some type of like employment company that like focuses on employment of chronically ill and disabled people and like how to get us into jobs that are inaccessible. But that really stressed me out and seems just like really big and like kind of like corporate and like something that I wasn't interested in. Um, and so then I was just like, well, I have to do a magazine. I could just do a magazine that's just only by us, like that just focuses on us and I can like pay everyone and it can be like work for these people who struggle to work. Um, and I was sick came to me immediately because like, I just feel like that's like my name. <laughs> it's just constantly, oh, I'm sick, I'm sick, yeah, I'm sick. Um, and so I, had, I still have this little notebook that first I start like outlining like little logos with my really bad handwriting and <laughs> originally I thought it was going to be way more like magazine-y than it is more I feel like now it's more like literary like I thought it would have more like columny type things and like lists and I don't know I think like, I had interned at Mary Claire so I think that's that was kind of more of that in my mind um but yeah I was like oh my god this is a great idea and I believed in it so much I was like it's totally it's gonna happen I can see it so clearly um but then I didn't want to do it while I was at uni because I wanted to get experience. And then still in my head, I was like, oh, I'll graduate and like get a job in journalism and like get experience. And then like when I'm actually an editor, then I'll start my own thing with all my experience. So that was like my plan. And then when I graduated and moved to Norwich where there's not very many jobs, um, and the ones that are in my field were all full-time, uh, no accommodation, like, you know, just you have to be there at 9 a.m. At that time in my life, I couldn't do anything before noon. So it was just, everything was inaccessible to me. Um, and so I ended up getting a part-time waitressing job, which I was like impressed and proud that I was able to do that. Um, it was like perfect hours. I never started earlier than 12. I had like some three hour shifts and it was definitely like physically really hard, um, but I was able to manage it. And I was at the pub one day, I was at the birdcage in Norwich with my friend and I was telling her about this idea and she was like, well, when are you gonna do it? And I was like, you know what? Like maybe I could just do it now. Like maybe now is the perfect time because I'm working you know, 18 hours a week. I feel like I have the time, I have the space. Like Norwich is a great city to do it in. Um, and so then I just quickly decided, okay, I'm doing it. I'm going to do a summer launch. And then I just dove in hundred percent, did so much research. Like this was probably like the least fun part it was just like so many times where I was just like, there's no way I can pull this off. Like this, this is ridiculous. Um, but then I did and I did. So issue one is just like a, what I call like a preview zine. It's like shorter 34 pages. Um, and it was just kind of to be like, I want to make a full issue of this. If you like it, kind of support us. And then that kind of took off more than I was expecting it to. I was expecting it to be much like, like a zine. I feel like people received it as more of a magazine and more of like a full body of work that I kind of saw as not a full issue of sick. It was just this little like, check this out. Um, so then, yeah, since then, it's just been growing and receiving so much support and it's been really really rewarding, really amazing. And I'm just like, really happy that I'm able to do this. Of course, like, 
it is amazing like it's such a massive feat to have launched something like that I think it's maybe an idea that lots of people have to like create their own publication but to have had the success that you've had with it is like yeah incredible really um but I was wondering you you sort of speak about like this magazine idea is sort of like having a eureka moment um of like oh I'll do a magazine sort of thing but what's like the importance or significance of having a print magazine specifically to represent the voices of disabled and chronically ill people yeah I mean it feels really important to me to take up like physical space and to be something that like people see on shelves and have to physically take in and physically sit with um it also just is personally like I just have always loved magazines and don't enjoy reading stuff on my computer so like if I was going to create something that involved reading I was not going to do it in a way that I didn't enjoy so that's you know kind of I guess the main reason but I also think that I feel that way because I feel the importance of things more when they are physical um, and when it's more than just an article on a web page, it's really a, an object, it's a work of art, it's a be beautiful covers that you can have on display in your homes. Um, it's something that you can pass along to people, that you can share with people, that you can have forever, that's not just a page that you can click out of. So it feels important to me that it's like, a, it's like an archive, you know, that you can collect and that can really last forever. I always kind of picture like, where in the world just this little thing of paper could be sitting you know and it could really be anywhere and in such odd places and I think you just can't do that with the internet I mean obviously the internet can be everywhere but it's like in this other world that you can't touch and print is just there and in your face and I just think there's a lot of value in like sitting with something physically yeah, I agree. There's nothing quite like a print magazine. Def like the weight of it, both like physically and like metaphorically creates a weight because it's like something in your home and it's like an accessory to the home almost. Um, and yeah, something you can treasure and like read back on. I feel like you're far less tempted to reread articles that are online because obviously yeah. with the print you can. Yeah, I think that's a great way to describe it, definitely. And also it's that idea of like, if you're a person that has struggled to like take up space physically to have something that announces itself so much physically mm. I think can be like a huge feeling of empowerment in that sense um so I've, I'm sure that like the contributors to SICK have really felt that but obviously there's such like a broad spectrum to disability and chronic illness and I was wondering how you sort of approach that of how to represent that broad sp spectrum of people. Yeah, that's something I think about a lot um, when I'm working on each issue. Um, I do work like through an open submission period. So like it is very much dependent on what I've an editor try to um, have a balance of things I do have a lot of sometimes I'll get a lot of submissions that are you know about like a one illness or something and I want to make sure the issue isn't full of just work about one illness but it we do have you know a lot of work on like chronic fatigue I feel like uh, ME-CFS is mentioned a lot um, and I think that just honestly comes from like living in a filter bubble with the internet and that like I identify with MECFS, chronic Lyme disease, like these kind of like energy limiting, limiting illnesses. And so when I started sick and from like my personal account and sick account, like the people I follow, the people that I read, a lot of the people that I've ended up engaging with, like reflect that experience too. I mean, majority obviously, but not obviously I read outside of my own experience but I do think the filter bubble and like social media like pushes people that are very similar to you um into your feed and that that kind of has ended up with contributors being yeah more from this like an energy limiting illness side of disability um but it is 
you know, very important to get like a range of experiences and to highlight the, you know, the wide range of disability. So it is something I'm very conscious of and trying to do, um, trying to do better at constantly improve. And I, I would say also just like the term sick, not a lot of, not all disabled people are going to identify with, not all disabled people may identify with my magazine. Um, and so I think, you know, it's not something that is supposed to represent everyone's experience or all disabilities. Um, but it is something that it's like a space for all disabled people. I think also because I don't like reach out to people to submit to the magazine, like if I did that, it would probably be a lot more diverse. Um, so I try to get, you know, when I'm open for submissions to get that in front of people a diverse range of people but like like I said with social media being mostly the way that operates it's hard to to do that so it really is just kind of what I receive and trying to spread the magazine to more people so that more people are aware of it and want to submit yeah definitely I think it's, it's so true what you said um a bit earlier about social media how you're kind of in this echo chamber so like literally every time the UK has an election and you think oh everyone on my Twitter is like wants the same people to get out of government and you're like oh this is gonna be great and then the votes come in and you're like oh yeah this isn't the whole population there's a whole other group of people out there <laughs> and it's always I a know. depressing reality to remember that um definitely yeah um yeah it's, it's interesting to hear what you what you say about how that kind of like works with the internet um and how, how do you think um, the internet um, has kind of changed um, disability culture in recent years? Yeah, I mean, it's changed so much. I remember when I first got sick, this was before Instagram. I mean, I think before Twitter, I didn't even know when that came out, but I had a Tumblr and I would search, you know, like Lyme disease in tags and maybe find like one person who would be blogging about Lyme disease, but it was not at all what it is now where you can just search things and find, you know, so many other people doing, dealing with the same thing. Um, so I really, when I was younger, like I genuinely thought I was the only one on the planet earth that was experiencing what I was experiencing. And it was very alienating. I thought I was like, the freakiest freak who ever lived like no one could comprehend my existence and I was almost like obsessed with that like feeling and almost just like how can I be this weird <laughs> like there's something so wrong with me and then getting an Instagram and even since I had Instagram I still didn't really like engage in this disability culture until really like around when sick came out and obviously there's been stuff going on before then that I just didn't engage with, didn't know about. Cause I, I didn't even identify as disabled until I applied for university. I realized I could check the disability box. And then I was like, okay, I'm disabled, but like, I'm not really disabled. And then after doing more reading and, you know, research and I searched as, okay, I am disabled, embracing that. And only that is when I really started to engage in that online and it's really changed my life I mean so many so much acceptance for my illness has come from the internet and disability culture so I think it's even in the past like year two years I feel like I've witnessed so much more of a conversation going on and like Instagram accounts just posting like infographic kind of things that are just really easy to digest and really easy to make I think talk about illness and disability, be more accessible, more like mainstream and not something that you have to like study to learn about. You could just see something on someone's story and actually gain genuine knowledge and be like, oh, okay, like that's, that's how I'll act next time I see someone using a wheelchair, you know, like that you can understand that so quickly instead of, I feel like before I felt like I'd have to get a degree in it or something to really understand. So I think there's probably a lot of people who can speak much more in depth on this. And I just feel kind of like a little visitor in this world of internet um, in the sense of disability. I think also cause like sick is not really a internet based 
thing but I use obviously social media and stuff um but it's changed so much and even with COVID things being more accessible like events being virtual has been really amazing and includes so many people who have access to so many things now that they wouldn't before even non-disabled people just people who are in a different country and they can't go to the event now the event's virtual it's like why have we not been doing this this whole time like it just seems so obvious but yeah I think it's just going to keep the internet is just a really 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 influential important place for the disability community and I think it's just going to keep growing really and yeah where do you kind of see it going in the next um 10 years um the internet's kind of effect on disability culture and what do you hope to see as well I hope to just see more awareness but also like normalization of disability and I that's what I'm trying to do with sick and what so many other magazines and companies and podcasts and you know magazines like able which is about by disabled people I think it's not enough to just have a few magazines about disability and it doesn't need to all be about disability I think once we realize like we can have hundreds of magazines just like there's hundreds of like you know marketed women's magazines that people might say are similar but they all have their own identity really I think is really cool to happen. Um, I don't, it's hard for me to think like 10 years, like that just seems like pretty wild. And <laughs> I feel like it's hard for me to comprehend anything beyond today. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I really just hope that it can, everything will be more like normalized. Disability isn't such a taboo topic. And I have seen that happening which is really, really nice. And also like the whole thing of like a decade seeming so long. I mean, when you talked about like Tumblr earlier, I was like, oh, I remember the days of Tumblr. But when I actually think about it, I was probably on Tumblr like five years ago, but it feels like a lifetime ago. So, I mean, just in like the next year, we don't know what sort of platform is gonna pop up. I mean, like, look at how like TikToks exploded. Yeah. and. I know a couple of like disabled creators who have gained so much like popularity on TikTok making like very fun and joyful videos rather than I think like Tumblr was a lot of very like sad teens blogging. Yeah, that was definitely me. (laughs) Yeah, it was like, you know, just with like the dingy blue aesthetic, like it just was defined by that. But yeah I hope I hope that like the internet creates like those more like joyful expressions like we've seen with TikTok sort of thing and I mean what you were touching on earlier as well with the pandemic of like we've been shown of like when people's like in the general sense of the word accessibility has been like restricted how like the world can change and do you think that these measures that have been introduced through the pandemic will stick around um especially to help people who you know are do have like accessibility um issues with how the world is like designed for them or not designed for them yeah unfortunately i'm not very optimistic um when it comes to that uh there is an article in issue three that we'll be discussing that, which is a really great and important article. But since, I mean, when it first started and people were working from home, I remember like immediately thinking like, this is such an opportunity that's just not gonna be like taken advantage of. Like this is not gonna move forward. But I'm just, I'm such a pessimist. I mean, if I could not be a pessimist for a second, I would say that like, it's amazing (laughs) that there is this opportunity to really, I think, events wise I do think a lot a lot of people will do virtual have virtual as well as in person because I feel like if they've seen how much how the bigger audience they can reach like why wouldn't they continue to do that Um, so I think in some ways yes but I've also witnessed and heard you know way too many people being forced to go back into the office or having to quit their job or being denied accommodations that were okay two months ago Um, And so I really wish people would kind of sit with 
this experience more and ask themselves why they're they're pushing for in-person or why that they think that that's so valuable and who they're hurting in that process. I mean, the people that they're choosing to not hire that are being left out or who were included for, you know, a year and now being dropped again. Like, are those people not of value to you? And like, what are you saying when you say that you can't accommodate someone's needs? Um, the article in issue three will articulate that much better than I have, but it's been very, very frustrating to witness and very disheartening and really does just feel like a slap in the face, like the whole process. Like when people first started working from home, like I was very, very upset. Um, obviously they should be working from home during the pandemic, but it was just like, ugh, the amount of times I wanted to work from home or the amount of jobs that I've seen, like the same jobs or from the same company that are now saying like, oh, fully flexible, you can live anywhere. And like, I wanted to apply to it before and couldn't. And I just wish they would be flexible forever and not just when they have to be, you know? So I do hope it's not a conversation that is just kind of stopped and it's like, we must return to normal. Um, Cause you know, the title of this article is whose normal are we getting back to? And I think that's a really important question we should all ask when we refer to normal and what is normal and whose normal is it and who are we excluding? Why are you excluding them? And like, why are you choosing to continue to exclude them? Yeah, it's, it's such a frustrating thing. Um, I've just finished uni and I'm applying for jobs at the moment. And it's just so funny to see already the change of like, from all these remote jobs being available and now it's suddenly back to like London 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 and like I'm very lucky that I already live in London with my family but you know lots of my course mates have had to move home and you know don't have the opportunity to live in London and um, obviously there's like a whole other issue but it's just like so annoying like it literally worked like a week ago so why is it suddenly like not possible to carry on being remote when it helps out so many people for so many different reasons it just doesn't make any sense to I know and also being like this job is remote but you have to be willing to come to London as as soon as we say you have to so it's like it could could be remote for a whole year and someone Mm -hmm. in Leeds could do the job for a year but they won't give it to them because they want you to be like on call to come in and it's just like chill out you know it's not that serious (laughs) (laughs) I think that is the thing like it is just a chill out we have all like been fine with the whole like work from home idea which I think is a phrase that I hate um but (laughs) it is just thing that like it's able to be done let's keep doing it sort of thing yeah I think it just should be up to the person if they want to be at home or want to go in the office like whatever works better for them it's like options that's another thing it's like not Mm. everyone is going to work in the same way and that's you know very something that I've learned a lot through disability it's like why do we have this one structure one idea it's something I think a lot about in school like I've been thinking if I had if I could have done school remotely like that was never even a thing that would have been considered for me it was like Mm. I have to force my body up really early on the subway like making myself more sick than I had to be to conform to this idea of normal of what must be done and it's like really why are we acting like every human is like exactly the same and has the same preferences and needs like we should try to have options for as many things as we can really to just benefit everyone yeah I agree and also that question of like willingness you know if you're not able to physically get to a place that somehow correlates with like your passion for what Mm. you're doing sort of thing and that's it's not a straight correlation it doesn't work like that at all yeah Um, like if you want to work for us you should be willing to like run a marathon to get to our office because you're so passionate about being here and like that's we only want people who will run marathons to our office (laughs) ridiculous actually outrageous but yeah so I completely understand what you were saying of like you'd like to be an optimist about it but it's it's a big struggle to actually be an optimist about it when we've already seen the backtracking of measurement of measures that were put in place so 
yeah it's a very much a fingers crossed situation but it shouldn't be a fingers crossed situation yeah um but what you were saying of like um earlier of like your personal entry into disability culture and also like that initial hesitation and yeah the multitudes of it all um I was wondering you've talked before about living with physical and mental illness and I was wondering how those two things overlap for you I mean I kind of I'm trying to see them all as like one nowadays because I feel like something I work a lot in therapy on is like it doesn't matter if it's physical or mental because I have to address it and treat it and or not treat it medically but treat it with my myself you know it's a it's a struggle it's a symptom no matter what's causing it so I think that was a big thing for me to deal with because I was told you know when I got sick for years all I was told was that it's all in my head that I'm just depressed I need to suck it up and go back to school so I was constantly fighting to prove that it wasn't mental that being mentally ill was you know I had to prove that it was physical and that if it was physical I would get taken more seriously I would get treatment I would get help I would be seen as someone you know as a sick person and not just a dramatic person which is horrible because if you know everything I was going through is all mental that should be taken just as seriously as if it was all physical I mean it wasn't taken seriously at all regardless (laughs) but it's you know a real real problem in the medical world so also I developed mental illness because of my physical illness because I would completely lost my life when I was a child and every doctor I went to said that I was just being dramatic so how am I supposed to like not develop some type of anxiety from that some depression of like losing my body you know and then once I do get depressed it's like oh now they can just write it all off as all depression but I see it as physical and mental that are completely completely entwined with one another and I kind of I guess try to just see it all as sickness and not as I guess something when I'm if I have a day where I wake up and I'm feeling really bad I used to think okay am I just depressed and don't want to get up or am I like really fatigued and is this Lyme and that just wasn't helpful to frame it that way because regardless of what it was that was how I was feeling and the idea that oh if it was mental I should just like push through and if it's physical I could rest just wasn't helpful or true or something I agree with so now I'm just like, this is how I feel and this is how I should take care of myself or this is what I need. And to almost just not even bother explaining what exactly it is. I just want to be like, I'm sick. I'm unwell. I can't do this today. And so allowing myself to kind of, I want to not explain myself a lot of the time. I, I felt my whole life that I have to justify and explain or I try to look look sicker than I am because people think I look so healthy and good that I'll try to you know oh I need to look tired to make them think I'm tired which is so fucked up I mean what the hell and I still catch myself doing that and I'm just like this is ridiculous like so now I try to look as good as I can and be like I feel like I'm dying you know just like trying to prove a point but it really is something that every disabled person deals with I think there's a huge, huge mental, mental toll with being, you know, disabled by society and the range of experiences and like guilt is something I deal with a lot um, and disbelief. Like I'm still, I don't think I'll ever get over the, the trauma of being disbelieved and having to constantly, constantly feel every second of every day that I have to prove that I'm actually sick. Um, so that's just like an ongoing mental thing, but that's just, you know, part of my illness. That's just part of my disability now. Um, and also, I guess recently I've like not been identifying with a diagnosis as much. Um, so I was diagnosed with chronic Lyme before that I was diagnosed with CFS ME. I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Like it's, for me personally, this is very much only my experience as I see those all as one thing. And it's just like an unexplained 
energy limiting illness that I see I know so many people who have we all have it in different you know whatever it's basically all the same symptoms on a different scale and it's all just these illnesses that doctors don't care about don't research don't believe um swept under the rug completely ignored and there's just millions of us like suffering so I don't know if I really have Lyme disease I don't know if I really have ME because no one actually can figure out how to diagnose us like with actual tests when we probably could with everything being like a clinical diagnosis it's just like yeah I have Lyme yeah I have ME but I'm just sick and there's a it's a lot more than just like a name for something I used to really identify with a, a diagnosis because it was so validating it was like okay I'm not this total weirdo like there's a name for it other people have it but now I'm just like who knows man it doesn't even matter I have my symptoms this is my life I have to deal with it regardless of what it's called I don't even see a doctor I don't get any treatment <laughs> like just gotta learn to live with it and that's what I'm doing and that's like largely what I feel like sick is about too I think that's such an interesting point about what you were saying about not trying to identify if it's like the mental or the physical because ultimately like you're still feeling how you're feeling um and I just think in general it's just such a sad reality of the gaslighting that happens in um the medical world um that as you say like when you have that title associated with it it's like yes like told you so like I wasn't you know making it all up there you go but but ultimately you're still living with it and you're still facing this like continuous forever having to like prove how you're feeling and oh yeah it's just it's, it's so frustrating and something that I see like so widespread that I don't feel I feel like I don't know anyone that has had like a good experience um with um trying to yeah get through to doctors and stuff um yeah yeah and I think what you were saying with that like parallel with like sick magazine and also the idea of like you know creating physical space with a magazine can be empowering just as like labels with like a diagnosis can be very validating but it comes to a point of when it's like you know you want to expand further with like you know disabled and chronically ill people and what they write about and what they're creating and also you want to go beyond this necessity for labels and diagnosis and how they can be you know affirming because at the end of the day it's like yeah it, I'm, I'm just sick sort of thing so yeah I think what you've touched on it just has like so many facets to it mm yeah definitely um so we are coming to the end of our episode very shortly um which is sad but it's been a, a wonderful time and so enlightening for sure um we do have a couple questions though before we go um so just kind of as a as a kind of summary situation I just wanted to um ask what your proudest moment um during six existence has been so far I think it's got to be just receiving really meaningful <laughs> messages from readers, um, especially the ones where people say that it's like genuinely helped them accept themselves and their illness and to embrace the idea of being disabled rather than feeling ashamed or embarrassed or like they're not deserving of being called disabled. So that's really, really, it makes me so proud that what I've made was able to genuinely help someone to touch someone's life. Um, I'd say also seeing it in stores is like very, very surreal to me um, and just fills me with so much, so much pride and joy. Like I just can't believe that stores were like, yes, this looks good, we want to sell it. And then people go to the store and buy it and it just makes it such a real thing that's out in the world. And it's so hard, like just wild to see something that I've made in a bedroom 
be sold in stores around the world. Um, so that definitely makes me really proud, especially stores that like, like the Tate Modern's magazine selection was a place that I was always like, I'm going to have my magazine here. Like, this is my spot. And it was always, you know, one of those things just like I thought, oh, I'll definitely get a job at Vogue when I graduate. And then so to actually see it happen, like I went to the Tate, I think a couple years ago, I saw someone pick up sick, flick through it and then go buy it. And Aww. I was just like, ah. <laughs> like the whole time, it was just really, really awesome. Yeah, that's so special. I can't imagine. Yeah, that, what that must feel like. Do you remember when you first ever saw it in, in a shop? Yeah, the first shop I saw it in was in Norwich, which was just like down the road from me. And it was Aww. like, I always like, looked at the magazines there. And then it's just so, yeah, it's strange. I think it's because you see a magazine, you just picture like an office and like all these people that are a part of it and the money. And then to have something that was just made so DIY, like next to it just seems like mm. so weird. But then I'm also like, okay, maybe not every magazine is what I thought it was. Like maybe a lot of the world is really just DIY and we're all just like, what's going on about everything? <laughs> yeah, I think that's, yeah, definitely true for sure. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's nice. It must be a nice experience to kind of get that reality of it. Makes yeah. the other ones a bit less, um, what's the word? Uh, the word's gone, doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Can I also ask when we can expect an issue three or is that still? Yeah, so. Hush, hush, not quite decided maybe. It's not hush, hush. It's just like, I cannot uh, like have like, I can't plan things more than like a week or two ahead of me. And everything's just so like dependent on people's capacity making the magazine, but it's no secret or anything. So like, Today, I've been working today on finalizing the last bits of issue three. Um, the design is pretty much done. And I'm think I'm not sure when this is going to come out, but this podcast is going to come out. But I'm thinking next week I'm going to drop the cover Ooh. and then open pre-orders. In the next couple weeks, it'll all be happening. And then it's going to be printed in August. So yeah, very soon. Very exciting nice we can't wait yeah but yeah we do have a final question for you we do um so yeah in line with our podcast name bite my tongue is there a time where you've regretted biting your tongue in the past and what would you like to bite your tongue less on in the future I think this just still comes back to like disability for me and just feeling like I'm not allowed to speak about my experience or that it's awkward or shameful um, or not wanting just being like someone will ask me a question and the answer will involve as it usually does somehow me being disabled and just kind of feeling like I almost say it and then I'll be like eh, and then just say something else and I think obviously with sick I'm not doing that anymore um, mm. and I'm proud of that and I think if people you know no one not that saying everyone who's disabled should go screaming about it if that's not what they want to do but I think there is something powerful in, in embracing who you are and just owning it and it's not always easy um, but that is what what I'm I guess trying to do now I also think like just in journalism in general like not sending pitches because I'm embarrassed or not sending a question to an editor because I think it's stupid and just being like it doesn't matter just send the email just just try and the worst that could happen is a no and you just keep going absolutely I agree for sure yeah and that's I, I think something I have to work on as well to just bite the bullet and it's okay to ask for help yeah. advice and stuff yeah well it's been but absolutely lovely to have answers. you sorry Foz yeah thank you so much <laughs> it's yeah, okay we were both tripping over each other to say yeah, it's, yeah I've really enjoyed this chat and really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us as well yeah thank you so much for having me it's been really great I'm glad nice
So that was our episode with Olivia. And wow, what a great app. I really enjoyed um, talking to Olivia. And I just feel like I need to go have a lie down and think, <laughs> you know, it's really like, it's one that's got me thinking. Yeah, like this, I think this episode was really indicative of something that I've really enjoyed about the series as a whole mm. of like really being given the time you know like sort of roughly an hour sort of thing to really think about these bigger topics yeah. and really just like get into them um and I think yeah chatting with Olivia that was something huge of talking about like the personal and then the societal the institutional all the sort of thing it really went through the layers of everything um and yeah I really yeah I I was really just I think moved and inspired Mm. by the conversation yeah definitely and yeah just shout out to Olivia for giving up her time to talk to us because she sounds busy like writing the book doing the magazine like the new issues about to come out like just yeah that's that was really um yeah I was really grateful um to be able to organize that time to chat with her and um hopefully yeah I'm hoping the listeners also like felt as um rewarded by the conversation as we did and also will yeah support publications like Sick Magazine because it's like Sick Magazine is sick like honestly <laughs> some of the best writing that I've come across from young creatives so well yeah that's that's the, the only plug you could ever need so go check it out and yeah give it some support and yeah um please come back for our next episode <laughs> <laughs> really please um yeah you can subscribe to us and also leave a review if you would like to um mm. saying that you know me and Izzy should shut up more um we need the feedback so yeah need to be raining yeah Yeah. (laughs) but annoying voices will be back next week so see you all then see ya this episode was brought to you by gals and journalism and you can find us on instagram and facebook our show notes and transcriptions are on our website www.galsandjournalism.com this episode was produced by foz and edited by isabel Our music is an instrumental version of Sertraline Gang by Tranny Boy. Tranny Boy is the abolitionist, queer, Afrofuturist, hyperpop brainchild of Jawlift Seville. As Tranny Boy, he celebrates the multiplicity of black, queer, disabled existence by transforming what is frightening, mania, trans homelessness, trauma, the immense difficulty of being a black working artist, and making it an expression of joy. Our logo was designed by Megan Shepherd, who also designed the Galson Journalism logo. We'd also like to shout out to City Ventures for supporting this podcast.